A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. the Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And of course, the Duchess of Sussex and Prince Harry have had their baby boy and it took precisely three seconds for a press release advertising a royal onesie to land in my inbox. What would be your dream name for it? I don't have a dream name for someone else's baby. How could you not have contemplated? What's your dream name? Uh, Malcolm or Perry. Perry? Perry Windsor. Perry Windsor's quite a cool name. Pez how, Win- you, how could you not have thought about this, Pez Pandora? Windsor. I've, I've you haven't thought, thought about it, Dolly. <laughs> it, you just, you've literally just invented it in your brain. You haven't thought about it. Anyway, many well wishes to Malcolm Windsor. How was your banky? <laughs> I went to a lovely hotel with my husband for his birthday and spent the whole thing groaning in bed with either norovirus or gastroenteritis and as I said that you let out a giant vape puff I'm sorry I have to vape literally puffing in the face of my illness I'm sorry Um, it's hard to tell which it was because both are fab but I did watch a lot of This Is Us which was a dangerous thing to watch when dehydrated I tried to offset the additional tear moisture leaving my body with Lucozade it's a bit poor thing eh? how was yours? good pretty wild actually pretty wild you did none of that sort of... It's a bit like in your follow-up chapter in your book where someone's feeling sad about turning 30 and you remind them you're not yet 30. But please, carry on. No, I'm so sorry. I have, like, a massive hangover today, if that makes you feel better. Um, no, it doesn't make me feel better. Our <laughs> uh, Thursday night kicked off the banky holiday and I went to Fleetwood Back, the world's number one Fleetwood Mac tribute act <laughs> how was that uh, amazing and I'm now completely obsessed with seeing tribute acts seeing the Smythes this week <laughs> and, uh, on the way home so inspired was I by their performance I realised the next day when I checked my emails that I had ordered a tambourine and a pair of maracas at 12.03am and they've been delivered sadly to my neighbour and I'm quite worried that he's shaking it and knows what it is because I've, I was talking to Elizabeth Day about this. There's something about buying a tambourine which is too premeditated. You need to just sort of have it in the house. Yes, in a little, in a little kind of dressing up box. Yeah, just yeah. Just pull it out. There's something so sad about thinking about a person. Yeah, it's tragic, Purchasing it? it on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Anyway, so that's very fun. And then I saw Elizabeth Day do an event, do a How to Fail event with Zari Ashton. On, Thank you um, for taking me through your entire weekend. On... Uh, you asked how it was Pandora. It's not a planted question up top. And saw them do a live event uh, of how to fail. And Elizabeth was great. She came on at the beginning and she didn't realise she, she wasn't mic'd. So she just spoke with no mic into this huge theatre. 
And it was so powerful, it was like a TED Talk, that she had us eating out the palm of her hands. TED Talk on failure. Yeah, it was so... Well, there we go, that should be the next... If anyone from TED Talk is listening, Elizabeth Day is made to be a TED Talker. So I had a lovely weekend. I'm sorry you had a rotten one. <laughs> That's all right, I'll recover. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's favourite story this week, and definitely helping me feel better, is of course the Hedgehog Hospital, or the Hogspital, set up by two teenage girls which has saved over 400 hog lives. So sweet. 13-year-old Sophie Smith and Kira Babutis ran a rescue centre called Hedgehog Friendly Town and local vets have come to rely on the girls for aftercare. So David Attenborough has written them a letter thanking them for their efforts. Sweet. Such a lovely story that it made the front page of the Times. (laughs) I think we do need stories like that right now. I agree. Some news on the subject of online anonymity from Austria, where there is now a draft bill that could become law in a matter of weeks that insists citizens can only post comments on websites such as Facebook using their real full name. The digital mask ban has been thought up by the culture minister, a member of the far-right Austrian People's Party. The aim is to crack down on online abuse and the law will apply to any sites with more than 100,000 users. I mean, I think that's a great idea, but there's two things there. Is why over 100,000 users? That's still quite a few users below. That means they're not still using that. I did think that. Because actually often it's more those kind of corners of the dark web in those kind of random threads and forums where some of the most um, prolific uh, uh, defamation and kind of cruelty can happen. I'm also kind of nervous about anything when it's from a far-right people's party. But... I do think the idea and its genesis is definitely a really good one. I think it's insane that we've ever been able to do otherwise. It's definitely time to fuse the internet self and the real self and take accountability and culpability. Speaking of, Anna Delvey, a.k.a. Anna Sorokin, who we covered on the high-low when the Soho scammer or the Soho grifter was initially revealed, is facing up to 15 years in prison having been convicted for multiple counts of extortion after she swindled over 250 grand out of various hotels, individuals and boutiques in Manhattan, also revealed... I wonder what, I'm interested to see what you think about this one. Former Vanity Fair photo editor Rachel Williams, who you may remember was one of Anna Delvey's victims and talked quite a lot about yeah. it afterwards, yeah. has scored a $600,000 book and TV deal for account of the affair. Nailed it. Does that sound strangely large to you? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Go get that dollar dollar. I just thought it was quite funny because we talked quite a lot about how the reason why lots of people didn't kind of report Anna Delvey earlier is because the like hundred dollar bill tips were too tempting. Mm. But that's not really fair to ascribe that to Rachel because she, I think Anna Delvey actually left her with a like hotel and bar bill of 60 grand. So yeah. she's recouped that times 1000% yeah. with her. It's like the story of um, AJ Flynn who we discussed in a previous high-low episode, who kind of fooled the world of publishing. Everyone loves that story of a fraudster, a successful fraudster. It's like a template that is one of the oldest narrative templates. And it is intriguing and beguiling, I think. It's an extraordinary amount for the telling of someone else's story. But I'm interested to read it, for sure. I've seen the cover, it looks quite interesting. Speaking of DOSH, the Chancellor Philip Hammond is looking at raising the minimum wage from £8.21 per hour to £9.61, which would be the highest minimum wage in the world and lift millions out of poverty. Labour have said that they would like to raise it to £10 by 2020. That would be great news, wouldn't it? Yeah, that is great. Fingers crossed. 
There's also encouraging news from France, where police are reported to have handed out 447 on-the-spot fines for sexual harassment since last August. The law allows people to fine individuals for up to €750 for harassment on the street or public transport, the first being to a man who slapped a woman's bottom on a bus. According to a recent study, 43% of French women have experienced non-consensual physical touching. I'm surprised that the percentage is that low in the land of Gemla, Wolf Whistle and Catherine Deneuve's me, please. That's impressive progress, though. And some bathos to close our news from France. British tourists voted the Mona Lisa the world's most disappointing attraction. 86% of respondents said Da Vinci's painting was a letdown. I ripped that news story out, too. It tickled me because I'm afraid I felt exactly... The same so way. did I. I've been to see her twice in my life and each time my husband and I stopped by her for about sort of 30 seconds before wordlessly drifting away. It's too small, I think. It's not her fault. She's very small. It's very small. She's just overhyped. She's just a little... It, I just you, wish you'd get a bit closer to it. It was like the size of a postage stamp. That was literally what I was thinking when you said that. In the last week, it has also been revealed that she might actually have been unfinished because oh. of Leonardo da Vinci's nerve damage in his hand. How interesting. There's actually a bit of Mona Lisa news every single week. I think the week before last, there was a news article saying that, you know, historians had now detected grief in her smile. Over the years, historians have detected that she was pregnant in her smile. Wow. That she was devastated in her smile, that she was grieving, that she was tickled, that she was not tickled. (laughs) (laughs) Poor woman. That she just found found out it's happy hour. (laughs) Back to the home front, the Huawei Ferrari trundles on. Essentially, if anyone confused, Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson was sacked over a leak regarding Huawei and the 5G network. Basically, a lot of people are nervous about the Chinese telecoms company Huawei. You might have a phone made by them helping to build the infrastructure of 5G in the UK. Yes, we are getting 5G. Because it is a controversial company largely believed to be controlled by the Chinese government and it could pose a security threat. Australia, for example, have banned Huawei from building their 5G networks, although phones are still available to buy there and here. Problem is, while we have tons of money and they want to build infrastructure everywhere they go. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And of course, we couldn't not mention the other huge news story from the week, the flammable but really rather sad story of Caster Semenya, one athlete at the centre of a much larger row than her. For anyone unfamiliar, again, last week, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, aka CAS, ruled that women with naturally elevated levels of testosterone would be banned from women's sporting events unless they took medication to reduce their testosterone. The thinking behind this is that testosterone aids athletic performance, increases muscle bulk and the number of red blood cells. But of course, the reaction by many is that it's invasive and unfair for Caster to have to medicate herself or alter her own Mm. biology. Mm -hmm. This, of course, has opened up into a more flammable conversation beyond intersex athletes and trans athletes and Paula Radcliffe and other Olympian athletes have become involved in the conversation about what is fair. I've read so many opinion pieces on this and furious tweets. But the best thing I've read for anyone else that's empathetic but confused about the way forward is a piece by one of my favourite columnists because he's always so balanced and thoughtful. The Observer's Keenan Malik, which fully explores the issue from each side. On the subject of unfairness, he says, elite sport by definition is an uneven playing field. From Diana Asher-Smith to Lionel Messi, the best athletes are not like the rest of us. The difference is partly due to genetic traits. Why should Semenya not be able to take advantage of her genetic attributes as every other athlete does? It's a really interesting piece. Um, I'll link that piece in the show notes. It's very good. What's in the mailbag this week? 
We had a lot of impassioned responses to the news that the new Spanish government is contemplating banning prostitution. Oh, yeah. One listener said... The decriminalisation of sex work means that sex workers' workplaces are regulated through employment law, enabling workers to hold their bosses to account and form trade unions. Decriminalisation was implemented in New Zealand in 2003 and there's evidence that it works. A five-year review found no increase in prostitution, no increase in trafficking, sex workers more able to report violence and leave prostitution if they choose. In this review, over 90% of sex workers, including street-based sex workers, said they had additional employment, legal, health and safety rights. Crucially, when sex work is decriminalised, sex workers are able to assert their rights through labour law. A sex worker in New Zealand took her manager to court for sexual harassment and won. The judge commented that sex workers are as much entitled to protection from sexual harassment as those working in other occupations. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing. Another wrote... I've just listened to your most recent episode. While I too was on the fence for a long time about the legalisation or illegalisation of sex work, I have since landed on the former for two reasons. One, sex work has existed for thousands of years across civilizations and vast periods of time. It will always exist. There is no point pretending that banning something will stop it from happening. Therefore, making it illegal simply puts sex workers, who are already some of the most vulnerable people in society, in greater danger. However, I do agree that there needs to be more legislation to protect them and their workers' rights, and so far no perfect system has been established. Two, sex is one of the greatest pleasures in life and everyone deserves access to it. As able-bodied people, it's easy to take sex for granted. Some people need sex workers to provide them with what may be their only source of sex, people living with disabilities being the perfect example. The special on Netflix and Sauvage, harrowing but brilliant film, both include scenes where characters use sex workers in a positive and fulfilling way. Thank you for both of those. Really interesting. I think I'm still on the fence in all honesty, but I'm okay with that because the fence is somewhere that you and I, Doll, are trying to bring back into fashion. So for anyone who wants to lambast me for sitting on this fence, save your breath because the fence allows for reading and learning and thinking. Although I definitely do acknowledge that decriminalising sex work would allow for more protection of sex workers and that arguably like the decriminalisation of drugs reduce the violence that accompanies something prohibited. We also received a very moving email from a listener who's struggling with infertility and was very grateful for the discussion about the film Private Life which Dolly recommended last week. My husband and I have been trying for a baby for over a year now with no luck and a miscarriage under our belt. We were naive going into the process, surrounded by family and friends who fell pregnant within a couple of months, but the reality for us, and so many, is that it is an endless wait. The hardest part has been the loneliness. People do not talk about infertility. Even we haven't felt brave enough to tell our loved ones until very recently. The, are you two going to have children? And when are you going to start a family? Questions have made us want to scream out loud in desperation. Every month has felt like grief. My mental health has spiralled, our marriage has had its wobbles and we find ourselves avoiding friends, family and social media, fearing the next pregnancy announcement. The latest kick in the stomach was our first NHS appointment last month, an ultrasound and internal scan, when we were left in a waiting room full of pregnant women. I had a panic attack in the waiting room with my poor husband having to deal with both mine and his own emotions. So thank you for telling the listeners about Private Life, Dolly. I've saved it to watch as and when I can emotionally face laughter about a very raw issue for us. I'm so grateful that she wrote in because, as I mentioned last week, I just could never have anticipated moving into my 30s what a um, prolific problem this is and, and yet how much shame is still attached to it. And also how, from 
people that I know going through it, how woefully unsupported so many couples are with this incredibly specific trauma that that so many have to go through. Absolutely. I mean, the more attention that's brought to issues that are just underrepresented in public discourse the better and that's not to say that everyone has to talk about their personal experience just that there are films about it yeah or there's stuff written about it or there's stuff like me and you who aren't in that specific scenario right now talking about it Mm. it doesn't have to be the people in question who are Mm. going through that pain talking about it on a much more trivial note what's going on with the bloody whale sadly there's still no joy on uh, what will now become my lifelong quest to discover whether a human can live in the cavity of a whale. Dolly, it can't live in the cavity. One listener did send us a news story about a man who very recently ended up in a whale's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Who was that, Dolly? While photographing a massive sardine... (laughs) While photographing a massive sardines. Quite a strange thing to want to photograph, isn't it? Yeah, it's niche. Oh, off South Africa's coast last month. I sort of forgot that sardines were once alive. I thought they only came in cans. <laughs> a dive tour operator ended up on the wrong side of a whale, the inside. Rainer Schimpf, 51, was in the water with a bait ball, a swirling school of sardines surrounded by predators when he suddenly felt the world go dark. He quickly realised that he'd been scooped up by a whale. He told the Today Show... I held my breath, he said, expecting the whale to pull him down. I mean, there was no other thing I could do, he added. You can't fight a 15-ton animal. Fortunately, the whale was likely as displeased about the situation as Skimpf and spit the swimmer out within a couple of seconds. Absolutely terrifying. No desire to go Suddenly it went dark. The end of the world in a whale's mouth. To end on a funereal note, before we head into our recommendations, the co-op funeral directors have published a survey which aimed to find out 2019's most popular funeral song. You're so rude to me when I pull up a press release, and this is the pressiest of the releases. When it was first compiled in 2016, the list featured hymns such as The Lord is My Shepherd, All Things Bright and Beautiful, and Abide With Me. However, for 2019, all three were replaced with modern-day pop songs like Ed Sheeran's Supermarket Flowers and You Raise Me Up by Westlife. Have a bit of self-respect. That's so X Factor. Which both made their debut. The top three funeral songs this year have remained in the same spot since 2016 with My Way by Frank Sinatra at number one followed by Time to Say Goodbye by Andrea Bocelli and Sarah Brightman. I love that song. And Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Eva Cassidy. Beautiful. Other songs which made it into the top ten included Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler Angels by Robbie Williams. Bit literal. And Unforgettable by Nat King Cole. Mm, what's, your, what's your funy tuny, Pandora? Oh, Christ, I don't want to think about that yet. Tell me a funy tuny. <sighs> I'll, I'll put it on my to-do list. What's yours? Good question. It's... Uh, yeah, you don't like it when it comes back <laughs> at you. <laughs> Take a Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. What, because you walked on the wild side for your life? That's how everyone will be uh, talking about me, I think, at my funeral. Rather than a song about sitting inside playing the guitar. This was a woman who walked on the wild side. Charlie Jones, what is your funi-tuni? Alive by Pearl Jam. Oh, because it's ironic. Immediately. guessing. <laughs> Immediately. Have you thought about that before? I was thinking about it while you were talking. I think we should all uh, contemplate it. Do tweet in and tell us your funi-tunies. What have you been enjoying this week? I'm absolutely obsessed with the Refinery29's Money Diaries. Cannot get enough of them. Cannot get enough. 
um, I go, I just go through them like back to back, but they're long. Why are they so good? They're so, because they're not just about money. They're about yeah. the way people live their lives. You and I are obsessed. It's like what's in your fridge. It's Can't the best get thing Refinery do by far. I think it's one of the best series on the internet. And it is so well read. Explain to the listeners what the Money Diaries are. Refinery 29's Money Diary is, does what it says on the tin, an anonymous woman between the ages of, what would you say, 20 and 45? Yeah. I've never actually read one probably over late 30s. Yeah but I'm hoping they go up to mid-40s, um, share what they spent money on that week. But in, like, granular detail. And they also share what they spent that money doing, how they felt while spending that money. And yeah. you kind of just get a real insight into their week um, and their relationship and their job. It's probably a couple of thousand words, would you say? Yeah, and, and also something I find interesting about it is it does make you really question your relationship with spending. So sometimes I'll read a woman's diary... And I'll think, God, this is a lot of capitalist greed in this day-to-day life with, like, the constant coffees and the ASOS and the sending it back. And then I contemplate my own day-to-day after reading it, and I'm like, oh, God. I would love to read your money diary. Will you do one for me? (laughs) Please. I'm not going to read it out on highlight. If this is a subtle dig about my Uber usage, I would like you to know that I have taken that habit in hand. It's not. I just, I'm so nosy. That's why I love Refinery29's Money Diaries. Although the judgment underneath, oh my God. I was reading one from like, she was like a banker or something in her early 20s. So by all... Love that one. Means she'd done really well for herself. And actually, and I worked incredibly a lot well. of the A lot of the comments love it, like when they're a young woman earning lots of money. People yeah. are literally like, get that money, girl. But then there's also people underneath being like, I can't believe you're buying a takeaway coffee every day. Like, that's such a massive waste. And it's just like, sod off. Like, yeah. people are allowed their small luxuries. For me, buying myself a flat white every day is, like, the best form of self-care. I'd do that over anything. I'd spend that £3 over going out for dinner or getting a takeaway or anything. Yes, I, I hate people being judgmental over it, but just completely riveted by it. I actually find, because most, most of the salaries that I've read on there are either average or under the national average... And I found that the judgment underneath has actually been in the women who have found a way on a smaller salary to have luxuries or treats in their life. And I just so believe that however anyone wants to spend their salary, no matter where they want to spaff it, be it on flat whites or ASOS or narcotics, whatever they want to do with it, it's just their damn choice. There's actually very few money diaries as well and I'm not like, wow, good for you, you're already putting away savings and, you know, you're in your early 20s and on a low salary and I'm really impressed when I read about people who have got savings set up, paying off student loans, you know, like doing sort of myriad financial obligations. There was that money diaries that went viral, was it about two years ago? That girl just living in chaos. When yeah, she spending was... like 50 quid on coke when she didn't have any money and people were... Yeah, and but people were so angry at her about it and I just think... I think that's the first time I'd heard of money diaries actually. I don't know. Everyone's reaction to that really pissed me off, actually. I found it, like, so puritanical and judgy. I just yeah, it's think definitely, it definitely is. Money is such a personal thing. And as long as you're not putting yourself or others in danger, or as long as you're not kind of being a resourceful, a, a drain on other people's resources, spend your money how you want. So Dolly feels completely dispassionately about that subject, as you will realise. <laughs> the highlight got a shout-out, though, in the Money Diaries last I week. I know. A lovely dairy farmer in Wales? No, she wasn't a dairy farmer. Her boyfriend's a dairy farmer. Anyway... Thank you very much for that. Um, I really enjoyed a piece um, 
that was sent to me, riveting, called The Stolen Kids of Sarah Lawrence on the cut. Have you heard about this? No. Riveting long read. If it hasn't done the rounds yet, it surely will. It's about a bunch of college students manipulated by one of the students' fathers who lived with them in their student house on the campus of Sarah Lawrence University in the US and extraordinarily was allowed to continue doing so without the university doing anything, despite many of the parents' desperate complaints that their children were being manipulated and brainwashed. Um, it's a shocking and really quite sad story. But it, it. it's completely riveting if you're interested, as so many of us are, in the idea of cults and communes or what seems from the outside like an almost implausible manipulation. Another recent example of this was the trial of the Nexium cult, which is ongoing at the moment in Brooklyn, which masqueraded as a sort of self-help sorority, but which blackmailed women into sexual slavery. There were chapters all across the US, Mexico and Canada with about 16,000 members. And that was all over the news only a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was a month ago, because it included the actress from Smallville. Alison Mack, yeah. who recruited young women and then forced them to submit to the sexual demands of their leader, Keith Ranier. Anyway, so there's a real, there's definitely a real, and some people have written about quite worrying, appetite, I think, for these stories about mm. cults and, and communes. What was that Netflix documentary? Do you remember? They, he built, like, this guy built a massive kind of village in Oregon. Wild, wild country. Wild, wild country. Thank you very much, CJ. So there's, I mean, yeah, there's absolutely loads of them, but you will really enjoy that long read on the cut, Dolly. It's, it's fascinating. And as I said, pretty sad and shocking as well. I discovered long reads this week, thanks to the writer Laura Snapes. It's an American website started in 2009 and does what it says on the tin, tells long stories. I really enjoyed one on the flattening of popular culture by Soraya Roberts called When Did Pop Culture Become Homework? Hmm. I'm not saying there are a bunch of professors at lecterns telling us to watch Game of Thrones, but there are a bunch of networks and streaming services that are doing that, and viewers and critics following suit, constantly telling us what we have to watch or must listen to or should read, she said. Essentializing any form of art limits it, setting parameters on not only what we are supposed to receive, but how. As Wesley Morris wrote of our increasingly moralistic approach to culture, this robs us of what is messy, intense and chaotic and extrajudicial about art. Now, instead of approaching everything with a sense of curiosity, we approach with a set of guidelines. What do you think? I totally agree and I think it's a faux intellectual tyranny that is upon us. Like, I certainly feel that pressure. Just absolute saturation of popular culture and that you have to keep up with. Yeah. everything yeah um i love the idea of her turning it into homework and i love her calling it the essentializing of mm. an art form and how it limits it she goes on to write creating art to dominate this discursive landscape turns that art into a chore people start saying things like do i have to watch captain marvel and feeling a lot of pressure to read sally rooney this kind of coercion has been known to cause reactance a psychological phenomenon in which a person who feels their freedom being constricted adopts a combative stance turning a piece of art we might otherwise be neutral about into an object of derision that's what i do what you you know i any time that i feel like everyone's telling me that i have to do something or watch something i become really oafish about it and i you, no, you're just home. obtuse <laughs> <laughs> yes well the guardians oliver berkman called it cultural cantankerousness mm. do you have cultural cantankerousness? i think i do yeah what do you have it with um a lot of box sets that everyone's going bleating on about yeah, you tend to watch quite random 
I'm quite surprised actually that what else I just you watched something I did I got that with Game of Thrones I was like oh I've missed yeah I missed the hype I sort of can't possibly catch up now basically all pop music as well for me now I think mine's not cultural cantankerousness mine is just like I don't I I don't have like the bandwidth to understand a whole nother genre of popular culture yeah like I'm very immersed and feel like I know you know a, a, a small amount about like books and journalism yeah so i'm like i can't i can't extend that into it i don't have time but one doesn't need to be a connoisseur on every corner of life i'm a connoisseur on 0.0001 percent of life me too (laughs) i think that's (laughs) fine i think that's optimistic so listen if you've got cultural cantankerousness don't let the hilo or anyone else tell you that you must watch or you must read something you don't have to watch or read anything Mm. just takes the joy out of it yeah, that's exactly what this piece is mm. about. I think it would really resonate with you. I really enjoyed an instalment of the Conversations on Love newsletter by Natasha Lunn with Lucy Kalanithi, a doctor at Stanford University, who was married to Paul Kalanithi, the neurosurgeon who wrote the best-selling memoir When Breath Becomes Air, a posthumous book about a doctor who becomes a patient when he's diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Natasha's interview with Lucy, who's currently writing the epilogue to Paul's book, is just so amazingly thoughtful and lyrical about life and love and death and you know the fact that just because her husband has died doesn't mean her love for him has died and that continues to evolve even in his absence when you have a visceral sense of how fragile we are as humans love expands in a crazy way she tells Natasha when Paul was sick I kept thinking how can a heart swell and break at the same time how is this possible um it was just it amazing thoughts about mm. love in in grief but also love beyond the grief and yeah it's just so thoughtful and smart um you don't have to subscribe to this newsletter but i would recommend it it's super easy and then the newsletter lands in your inbox and you get access to the beautiful archive which is about love in its myriad forms and not just its romantic obvious so it's very worth doing and both dolly and i hugely enjoy that newsletter love so it. really really enjoyable installment lastly i enjoyed a thought-provoking piece in the guardian by leo benedictus about whether or not certain books would be written today, namely American Psycho by Man of the Moment, Brett Easton Ellis, thanks to his controversial essay collection about millennials, White. So Man he- of the Moment is charitable. <laughs> Everyone's reviewed that book. <laughs> he received 13 death threats before it was published. Simon and Schuster pulled out at the last minute, and when Vintage then published it, he had to sign a declaration saying that he'd read all the death threats, just in case someone murdered him and his parents oh wanted to God. sue. Isn't that interesting? Um, I think you'd enjoy this piece too dull it deals with revisionism and the shifting demand for our fiction to be moral which is something that you and i increasingly struggle with in popular culture it's shocking because it's true says leila slimani a past guest of the hilo and the author of lullaby about a nanny who murders two children and adele about a woman with sex addiction she says to the guardian i never meant to shock people i just meant to disturb them make them feel something i think that literature is here to disturb us slimani says that actually there's something immoral about picking up a novel in order to feel better. I hate the expression feel-good books, she said. The meaning of a book is to awaken you, to make you feel alive, to make you open your eyes and look at human beings differently. Now, I have quite a lot of time for a feel-good book Mm. if I'm in need of one. But I think that that she says something really interesting there and it definitely adds to that conversation. Lullaby and Adele have both been published quite recently. So yes, they would still be published now. American Psycho, I don't think that would be published now. Do you? I mean, if it got 13 no. death threats. When was it published? 20 years ago? 30 years ago? In the 80s. Yeah. yeah. 
Anyway, very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I've, my been... column this weekend is about um, Puritanism on screen in particular, about the lack of bitches that you see on screen now. It's just so strange to me now that I was ranting about this actually on Friday night to poor old Laura Snapes. It's so strange to me that now it almost feels like the tax that anyone pays for being in public life, despite their job, even fictional characters, is that they have to be sort of philanthropic. Like they have to act like upstanding politicians or something. I just, I, I think yeah. it's just so illogical and irrational to me that that we that we demand that of everyone. You expect that now of writers. Doll, what have you enjoyed this week? Uh, I don't know if I enjoyed it. I endured Russell Brand on Joe Rogan Keep for the three hundred million hours that they were speaking. It was actually um, some of it was really really interesting. Quite a weird collision of versus like. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> it was actually a lot like that. Um, it's Well, they actually talk a lot in a very respectful and thoughtful and contemplative way about the huge polarities of their politics, which is really interesting to hear people be, to actually listen and respond yes. and find the commonality within their differences. Oh, absolutely. It, so I'll I really, listen for that alone. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. You know, when they were talking particularly like Joe Rogan loves hunting, Russell Brand is a vegan. They have a lot of discussion about kind of the ethics of farming and factory farming and the future of farming, which is very interesting. Uh, they're very united on the subject of the poverty crisis um, in the Western world and the, the disparity between uh, enormous wealth and extreme poverty and distribution of wealth. Um, and they talk about raising their daughters and being aware of of kind of gendering um, in a in a restrictive way, which again I, I found interesting. And you don't often hear men talking about those anxieties so much. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell Brand talks about uh, response to that interview that he gave, where he said he didn't change his daughter's nappies, and there was that awful backlash. And he talks about how he perceived that backlash. And does he now change what nappies? He... No, no, he doesn't. But he, but he, was, <laughs> but he was talking about why it was that he said that and how he felt like it got lost in translation. I don't think it sounds like it got lost in translation. I think what he meant was is that he... <laughs> Does other things. <laughs> basically, he and his wife, I think, have just defaulted to quite traditional parenting roles. And what he is saying, which I wouldn't argue with, I know lots of couples who conduct their relationship and their parenting in a quote-unquote, pretty heteronormative way. And uh, they are people who analyse and um, acknowledge and they're very happy with that dynamic. And I don't know, I think that different traditions or non-traditions work for different people. So it was just interesting to hear him talk about that. I don't know. know. As someone mired in nappies, I don't think I'll ever find a man saying he doesn't change nappies anything other than... No, I get that. I get I'm not defending Russell But but I'm really interested to... um, Really interested to hear him talk about the backlash because, again, you don't often get to hear people talk about when something they've said. Yes, yes. Uh, And, you know, increasingly as I write interviews, I do realise it is hard to really get the essence of someone in a a Mm. true, respectful way in 
a thousand words. So, uh, you know, I am increasingly interested when people have something to say in response to mm, how that interview has been captured. Because, you know, I've been interviewed very few times, but even when I read interviews with myself, I'm like, oh God, I feel like there are huge chunks of who I am yeah. or what I was saying that has been misinterpreted or whatever. So, yeah, that's interesting. It, uh, some of it I just I just had to tune out. There's this whole section where Joe Rogan is like <laughs> talking about how he believes that the Chinese military are creating ape human super breed killing machines. And I just uh, I clocked out at that point. <laughs> but a lot of it is fairly interesting. I'm also... I've also been enjoying I Knew I Was Right by Julie Birchall, which is a memoir that she wrote in uh, 1998. Uh, in d- typical Julie Birchall style, it's acerbic and very funny and self-aware and self-eviscerating at the same time. Uh, there are two bits that I wanted to read out. You know, she's a very divisive character and she's not, you know, she's a complicated person, but she is also an extraordinarily ta- talented writer, in my opinion. And I am just quite fascinated by her. And something she said here I thought was very astute. It is widely if mutely acknowledged these days that babies are the bald, beautiful bailiffs of romantic love. If things are looking shaky to start with, they will step stumblingly in, hanging onto the edges of the furniture all the while and bring the toppling tower of bricks to a merciful end. Having children accentuates more marital faults than adultery does. This may be why one in three young women no longer wants a little bundle of joy except on a purely time-sharing, best friend's brat, afternoon out type of arrangement. A baby is just for Christmas, not for life. In fact, if a marriage can survive children, it can survive anything. With this sad fact in mind, I regard through misty eyes the marriage of my parents, Bill and Betty Birchill of Bristol. Their marriage, always a pleasure, never a duty, has survived some 45 summers and me <laughs> she's just like very <laughs> yeah and she's always like willing to put herself through quite a merciless analysis which i think is quite a bold thing to do as a memoirist like there's a whole chapter where she talks about why she believes and knows that she is a psychopath like a self-diagnosed psychopath i'd love to read that after you it's really good it's like a little book as well i'll lend it to you but there's it she basically says like i've come to, i've come to realize that i value my pleasure over everyone else's pain more than anything so yeah it's a rollicking good read <laughs> The comedy writer and total babe, Monica Heisey, wrote a piece for the New York Times called Yes, This Is What Gifts Are Now, about buying a gift for Mother's Day. To quote from it. Now, trays. Your mum might have told you she doesn't want anything or that she'd rather just spend quality time with you, but she's lying. She wants a small ceramic tray with the moon on it to hold earrings, coins and other women's trinkets. She wants it to say dream in calligraphy. She needs it to be made by a pagan artisan whose company name promises witchcraft and then does not fulfil that promise in any way. Your mother laboured for hours to bring you into the world. The least she can do is fulfil her every wish by giving her a small shell to place a necklace in. (laughs) It's just this very funny kind of takedown of a particular type of like... You know, those like sort of Oliver Bonas where you end up spending, being convinced that you need to spend so much money for women you love on stuff that you know they just really don't want or need. Dream and calligraphy. (laughs) (laughs) And Monica Heisey as well, I hope I'm saying her name right, is so funny. She's like my favourite person on Twitter. So uh, do give her a follow if you're looking for a Oh, I will. I hadn't heard of her before. Thanks for that. 
I was also directed uh, towards a 2009 article for the Village Voice called I Will Not Read Your Fucking Script by Josh Olson, <laughs> which I just loved. It's like a kind of cult piece that writers refer to all the time. This is the opening of it. I will not read your fucking script. That's simple enough, isn't it? I will not read your fucking script. What's not clear about that? There's nothing personal about it, nothing loaded, nothing complicated. I simply have no interest in reading your fucking screenplay. None whatsoever. If that seems unfair, I'll make you a deal. In return for you not asking me to read your fucking script, I will not ask you to wash my fucking car, or take my fucking picture, or represent me in fucking court, or take out my fucking gallbladder, or whatever the fuck it is you do for a living. You're a lovely person. Whatever time we've spent together has, I'm sure, been pleasurable for both of us. I quite enjoyed that conversation we once had about structure and theme, and why Sergio Leone is the greatest director who ever lived. Yes, we bonded. And yes, I wish you luck in all your endeavours. And it would thrill me no end to hear that you had sold your screenplay and that it had been made into the best movie since Godfather Part 2. But I will not read your fucking script. And it just goes... It's so Did he get? Is he a writer that's been sent a lot of... So he's an Oscar-nominated uh, screenwriter. And the, the story... He goes on in the piece to talk about how he... He has been asked over and over and over and over again since he's garnered success by strangers and acquaintances to, uh, again, going back to what we we're saying, to have to be like a philanthropist. And- but I like that bravery because there's an assumption that, you know, when you do get a certain modicum of success that you should give back, you know, that you should kind of help others on their journey. And I just like being like, I wish you well. But I'm not fucking doing it. Well, what he said is that, and I think this is true, and I've been trying to find a way of articulating this for quite a long time. The assumption then is that that person doesn't already have a number of philanthropic or non-paid obligations already in place. So he said, you know, next to my bed, there is one huge pile of scripts that my friends and peers have written and have asked for my feedback on. So that they are people who I'm going mm. to have, you know, of course you would go to help them first. And then the second pile I have are people who my agents or people I work with have said I have to. So then after that, that's two huge piles, you know, and he probably, as many writers do, do various talks or go yeah. into schools or whatever. And I think that we have this idea that success immediately means an obligation to help any other person, any person who asks yeah. for help. I've certainly been guilty of it over the years where I've just like endlessly badgered famous writers or successful writers thinking that, you know, yeah, like a tax they owed me was that they should give me unpaid advice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the fact is most people, most decent people who have a modicum of success have already in place in their life systems in which they're helping others and sharing their experience totally. and wisdom. I always think that what, at the very least, what you should do is always reply, like, at, I'm not an Oscar-winning screenwriter, but if I were to be, this would be my MO and is my MO now, is to always reply. Um, you can't always offer help, but always have the decency to just reply and say thank you for email and best of luck. I always think if you if you don't reply, then I can understand why someone might feel like... 
I don't know. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And actually, I think this... you just state you just you know you. And actually, I read a brilliant piece in L this month. In fact, which I ripped out here and forgot to mention that you'd love Dolly, where the writer Laura Freeman, who we've had onto the high low, talked about the difference between urgent and important. And she quoted this amazing quote from um, Eisenhower saying, "I have two kinds of problems: the urgent and the important. The urgent are not important." the important and ever urgent. Mm. So she was talking about how important it was for her to write another book, but it wasn't urgent. So mm. she kept doing the urgent things. And she said that every single woman she tried to interview for this piece politely replied and said that they had other obligations. And she said, these are the women that know what's important, not yeah. urgent. Yeah. So that's an interesting... Yeah, it is. It's... Um... I think it's just this new world that we live in of such kind of constant and easy communication and access to people that we have misplaced what urgency is. And the other thing he says that that I've found to be so true is that what people want from him is uh, honest advice. So all they say is, like, I just want honest feedback from you about this script. And he said that, but the problem is, is that if you're at all a kind or thoughtful person constructive feedback and honest feedback it it takes emotional labor because you have to consider this other person how you're encouraging them what how you're galvanizing them how you're hurting their feelings you have to take their heart and ego into your hands so that's not like firing off a quick five minute email that's Mm. that's a labor and that's an emotionally Mm. laborious thing and you might not want to do that to every person that you meet at a cocktail party he wrote that in 2009 as well because i think the the barriers were eroded even more now in terms of thinking that we should be able to contact anyone for anything at all times um and sometimes i'm quite surprised by how extraordinarily personal or demanding the messages that come to me via i don't know like instagram inbox are um to honestly to the point where i i feel like they're quite jarring now i I think it's just about appropriateness I, i i feel this so often in modern life that you know without sounding like a fussy old lady that we have lost certain signifiers and formalities and boundaries of what is an appropriate way to speak to people who we know or don't know and what register to use with them how often to communicate with them and just generally observing yeah what's appropriate and what isn't Mm. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's time for another author special. This week, we have the debut novelist, Rosie Price, with us. What Red Was tells the story of Kate Quayle and Max Rippon, two best friends who meet at university. Kate becomes ensconced in the glamorous, complicated Rippon family, which the book jacket describes as one of generosity, social ease and quiet repression. It is at a Rippon function that Kate is raped, and the book explores the aftermath of that trauma and how it changes Kate and the people around her in granular detail. Rosie, this is a sensational debut. The prose is so elegant and thoughtful. It reminded us of Donna Tartt. And the observations are razor sharp. What made you want to write the story of Kate and Max? Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I, I wanted to write the story of Kate and Max because I wanted to capture that friendship you have when you're younger and where it's very aspirational. You meet someone who's dazzling, who opens a whole new world to you, 
who kind of shows you a future that you didn't imagine that might be didn't imagine might be available to you um and I also wanted to write a kind of non-sexual relationship which is um something I don't see as much as I'd like to in in fiction at the moment um because the book is so much about sort of toxic dynamics between men and women I wanted to write something that was also very stable and nurturing um at least at first and kind of innocent in that way you're you're right you normally see I was just thinking of like in one day you know I was expecting them to do a Dexter and Emma and get together and then as the book goes on you're like oh that's not going to happen but obviously other central elements come to the fore or even in Friends Kate Lever's written this great book on friendship and she examines how scared culturally we are of men and women just being friends Mm. we always feel like it has to kind of have a romantic conclusion yeah and I think it is different from a female female relationship Mm. Um, because there is more sexual tension there because there's always the question of um, might might we get together but I think that propels a certain intimacy um, and the fact of their differences of experience means that they kind of have more to learn from each other there's not so much solidarity but it's more expansive Mm. and that means that they both kind of have a new world to discover through this friendship the first half of the book as you mentioned it's full of kind of innocence and warmth and intimacy and, and domesticity it's a very different story to the second half of the book the tone and prose of which are characterised in the wake of trauma. Was this very sudden shift important in the story to reflect how sexual abuse in reality can and does change an entire life within seconds? Um, I think it, that didn't really happen deliberately. It was very organic, which is probably reflective of the truth of mm. how something like that changes mm. your perception. Um, but the way I started writing the novel was actually um, by writing a short story at the scene of the rape, which I wrote and rewrote and rewrote probably about a y- for a year before I actually started writing the novel. I kept coming back to it. And what grew out of that were the power dynamics and the relationships and the question of who is this man to this woman? Why does he feel like he can do this? Why does she feel she has to react in this way and not speak about it? So it kind of, even though there is a shift, it all kind of still grew from that centre point backwards mm-hmm. and forwards rather than being like a sudden snap change. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I do think that is one of the central things that a lot of people who've experienced trauma would say is that your perception of the world as a safe and nurturing place is just completely um, destroyed. Mm. You've been very brave and forthcoming about the fact that you yourself have been raped. Did you debate whether or not to make that public? And did you feel like you could write out some of your experience through Kate's story? Or did you hold those things independent to one another? Um, I think... Again, it kind of happened incrementally and naturally. I mean, when I first started dealing with post-traumatic stress and the repercussions of having been raped, uh, the thought of telling just one person was extremely difficult, so difficult that I didn't talk about it for several years. And 
it kind of once I got over one barrier it was easier to tell someone else and someone else and it felt natural if you told me right at the beginning you're going to write a book about this I would have been terrified but it was a natural kind of progression to moving from that place of secrecy which can be very corrosive to um, a place where I am now which is where I'm happy to talk about it and I don't know if it's so much writing out which suggests it's kind of a a purging so much as just positioning yourself as the storyteller rather than as the 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 person that everything happens to um the the kind of inanimate object that you become when you are assaulted when your agency is taken away in that way so it's kind of reversing that I recently read an interview with an author, I can't remember who, um, but I thought it was really interesting because it really challenges the idea that rewriting or retelling the story of your own trauma is a catharsis or therapeutic, and they said that's just not true. Would you say that that was the case for... I mean, you mentioned there that it doesn't feel correct to say that you wrote it out because it's not a purging. Mm. Would you say that that's true of what Reg was, or did it offer any kind of sense of... um, catharsis for you or is that something that you would really argue against? I I think that um, the one thing it does do is enable you to distance yourself a little bit from the story um, and by turning it into a story you're turning it into something that you're not you're not just passive you're kind of yeah exactly so it is about control but it's it's quite complicated I mean it's something that I ended up writing about in the novel itself with the character of Zara who um kind of also has a history of abuse and kind of takes Kate's story and does something with it which is questionable um morally but to me very understandable because she's in a position where the abuse is so old that she's really struggling to gain control over it and I think that's what she's looking for a kind of catharsis um, by regaining control Um, but this idea of catharsis it kind of I don't know I think we're maybe a little bit fixated in society on the idea of resolving a trauma and then moving on from it and then great your life changes and now it's in the past but in reality that's not how memory works and that's not how trauma works and what's happened to you in the past is always going to inform how you respond to things in the future um so yeah I guess it was a positive thing to do but I don't know that I would necessarily call it a catharsis I also find it a slight insult to the craft of writing (laughs) yeah Yeah. when when it's assumed because it's also never Mm. really put upon male writers as well when it's assumed that a female writer the way that she would find any sort of catharsis analysis peace redemption reflection on trauma would be to write in a book for for everyone to see that process for the first time everyone who I know who's gone through trauma who ended up including it in their work the therapy that they did was not in their work the work was their work the therapy was their therapy Um, therapy would be really boring in a book (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I remember you guys had Olivia Sidgick on Mm. a few months ago talking about exposure and she talks about that in a really interesting way um uh that quote she had no one's calling Nauskada diarist Mm, um and I think I I think Every writer brings their own experiences to their work. 
and their view of the world and their emotional I mean the raw emotion is what makes a book kind of live and breathe I think if you don't have that then it's going to fall flat no matter how you manipulate it or feed it into characters who are different from you um so yeah I think um yeah it is a it is a little bit condescending Mm. to say something is a therapy or as if it's just yeah a kind of an outpouring rather than a craft yes yeah exactly and it kind of suggests that it's self-indulgent yes exactly this book was so informative to me for so many reasons one of which was the effects of sexual abuse on a victim's own sexuality Mm. and the legacy that that can have over the course of a lifetime and Mm. one or many different relationships is this something that you feel is perhaps uh missed out or neglected in in conversations on the subject just because for me as i was reading it i realized it certainly isn't something that i've read about in um detail i haven't read Mm. a detailed account of it in fiction before Mm. um yeah it was certainly something that i didn't know a whole lot about until i was going through it Mm. um and i think that has a lot to do with the fact that we tend to view rape survivors or victims as being damaged um and kind of being sort of beyond sexual desire either as objects or as people who might want to have sex again at some point. Um, And that is so much to do with um, the shame that is piled upon rape victims. Um, So, yeah, I do think it's underexplored and um, often you'll see a rape in a film or a TV series as being a plot device which is there to kind of show what kind of a man this is who's going to go and save this woman or um, what kind of a man this is who's got... It's like a sort of, ah, bad guy. We know Villainy, this yeah, yeah. We yeah. know this because he's done this. And so rarely do we actually sit with the man or woman who is the victim and um, see how that trauma kind of folds into their daily experience. And that was something that was really important to me to write about because often we see it as a moment of crisis and even with the incredible Me Too movement there's a focus on that moment of talking about what's happened to you and saying and declaring it and saying that this is what happened and then you move on but in reality it's something that you live with every single day and it's very boring and it's very um, normal um, and sexy I guess is part of that yeah it's the aftershock like of living with the aftershock of it yeah You've written a beautiful piece for this month's Red magazine about a sex workshop called Café V created for rape survivors to discuss sex and intimacy, which you visited in the midst of delayed post-traumatic stress. I was so desperate to be normal, to be fixed, no longer broken, you write movingly. Could you tell us a little bit about the progressive and healing work of Café V? It sounded so interesting. Yeah, so they're part of a charity called My Body Back, um, which was set up by Pavan Amara, who is a nurse and a rape survivor. And she talks about what we were just discussing, um, the fact that there is... Um, so little sort of long-term support for rape survivors who are trying to get their lives back to kind of a normal um, trying to get back to normality whatever that is Mm. Um, and 
one of the main things they do cafe v is just part of it one of the main things they do is they provide cervical screening for women who've experienced sexual assault and things like having uh, contraceptive coils fitted they've set up a maternity clinic um and basically often often birth if you're a sexual assault survivor is extremely traumatic Mm. um i went to have a coil um fitted and removed having been raped and it was one of the most traumatic experiences even though they were very lovely mm-hmm. um they were very supportive the nurse was incredible the doctor was incredible I felt comfortable enough to talk about my experience I think if I hadn't been comfortable enough to tell them what had happened to me then it would have been even more traumatizing mm-hmm. than it was because having a foreign object inside of you that you don't really want to be there is you know obviously very triggering um so they provide all this incredible support and um yeah they're growing and i think they are in need of donations <laughs> so i um talk about them whenever possible because i think it's a service that's really really needed mm. the book is written in the third person with the story fluidly shifting focus from character to character and this storytelling device is harnessed I think most powerfully when the narrator first moves from describing Kate's emotional and physical pain Mm -hmm. in the months after she's raped uh, into the thoughts of her rapist who truly believes in his own innocent account of the Mm -hmm. night I imagine that must have been a very confronting and challenging thing to conjure how did you go about accessing that kind of thought process? Yeah, so um, I think I'd originally started writing the book in first person, at least when it was that short story, and I realised that what I wanted to do was look at it from so many different angles that it had to be in third person. And writing from the point of view of the rapist was part of that because... It's very easy to see a character like that as a villain and not try and understand why he feels he can do this thing, um, why he feels such a sense of entitlement over other people's bodies, particularly women's bodies. And I think um, looking at the world from his point of view, I found food quite an interesting way in, the way he eats meat um and kind of this sort of devouring sort of impulse that he has and the way he looks at women's flesh when it's sort of on display for him as he sees it that's in quote marks um it kind of gave me a way into then thinking what is this incremental progression from sort of something as simple as the way he goes about his daily life to the sort of sense of entitlement and ownership he has over women's bodies and um, something that I had to think a lot about was his sense of self-awareness how much does Mm. he really know um, what he's doing and I I think I mean I'm not going to be too explicit about this but I think that was an interesting question for me because I feel like there's a way in which he knows, but he doesn't know the impact of it. Yeah. He like realises, but he doesn't think it's that bad. Yeah. Um, and if he were to sit in Kate's mind for a day, then I do think he would rethink it. Um, but the fact is that he doesn't and he can't. Mm. 
Your understanding and relaying of family relationships is incredibly observant. There's one line which really struck me and which I marked down the page of when I first read it in November. The burden was great and Max could see the strain in his father's sleeplessness, the laboured way he climbed the stairs at night as if carrying his older brother. Have family dynamics always fascinated you and where did you get your inspiration from for the Ripon family? Uh, they have always fascinated me, I guess, just because it's the most intimate way of understanding personal power imbalances and um, kind of loyalty and sense of obligation balanced with kind of uh, love and familiarity. You know, this we may argue and we may have this conflict but we know each other and we are so familiar to each other that we're just kind of gonna stay in this um in this space and I think um when it comes to that sense of obligation Zara was definitely the most interesting character for me to write because she's so caught between this sort of fierce independence and um kind of pride of who she is and the fact that she speaks her mind and her her work she's a film director and her films are kind of progressive and very critical of the kind of social um norms that she's ended up having to subscribe to in marrying into this family um so yeah I guess I guess it's just one of the most interesting places to bring out those intense personal conflicts the Rippon family are so well drawn. They they see they're very. You can see why Kate's so drawn to them. They they're glamorous and they're complicated. And I really recognise in a certain type of kind of eccentric middle class family that very manicured sense of of social ease and generosity and a sort of open house policy, but with so many unsaid resentments sort yeah. of bubbling underneath. The protagonist is fascinated by them, their big houses, their exciting jobs, their social life. It's a background that's in sharp contrast to hers. How important was that examination of class and social power in the story? It was really important um, because I think there's an extent to which Kate's aspiration to be part of this world that she's glimpsed and has been invited into leads to her assault and that's not to say that cause and effect is the same as moral responsibility but it's as if she's somehow being punished for her aspiration and I think the character who perpetrates the assault certainly sees it in that way because he feels threatened by her Mm. and how easily she's slotted into this family in which he's actually struggled to feel at ease Um, so as well as the kind of power dynamics with the entitlement from the family and the kind of sense of I want this so I'm going to have it there's also from her point of view the kind of aspiration and the way in which she gets so brutally knocked down for kind of hoping to climb that ladder Mm. and feeling as though she can be mobile in that way Mm. Are there other books that explore this highly sensitive yet urgent topic that it inspired you when you were writing What Red Was? Uh, Yeah Definitely. Um, A writer I really love is Edward St. Auburn, his Patrick Melrose novels, um, which I read um, 
as I was writing my novel um, and his descriptions of trauma and what is unsaid um, and for that very British sort of social repression that comes with middle and upper class backgrounds he um, he just described so astutely and so hilariously but mm. also heartbreakingly yeah. um, so I'm a big fan of Edwards in Auburn um, but also um, Han Kang the vegetarian she writes so incredibly about the body and um, about sexual desire after trauma and kind of gives it time in such an abstract um imaginative way that I just it blew my mind when I read when I read her um yeah also Toni Morrison who writes so well about the way that trauma lives in uh bodies and the way that trauma is passed down through um generations and manifests itself in such kind of strange disorienting ways god you've given me a good reading list there I've I know I've never heard of Han yeah Han Kang, yeah, yeah, she's great. She's won the International Booker, I think, maybe twice. Or maybe How embarrassing dolly. for you, Pandora. How embarrassing for you as well. <laughs> You're definitely not. Fan <laughs> Toni Morrison, Dolly? <laughs> Big fan. No, all of everything that you just discussed is, is where... Um, is where my interests really lie. And also, and this is what I felt reading your book, is that it's, it's something that is so idiosyncratic and so nebulous and abstract and uh, intangible in so many ways and and finding a way of making it um of, of making it concrete mm. is so difficult i think and, well, and putting something that's rarely put into words put into words yeah. as well. i think you know it's probably no coincidence that we hadn't read about what happens after that central traumatic event in mm. fiction before because it's something that's probably very difficult mm. to do exactly yeah it's interesting actually because um trauma when you're experiencing something really traumatic um the part of your brain that processes language shuts down so when people say trauma is pre-verbal it's not kind of it's, it's kind of literally that's what it is oh, interesting. so i think that is probably why writers do circle back to trauma a lot because it is so difficult to find a manifestation for it in words, in language. A writer called um, Jason Green, he was writing about grief rather than trauma, but Mm. I think from what the the book explores and from what you've been saying, it's something that could be applied to that as well, is he was saying the grief is not... um, He was talking about death, and Mm. he was equating it to, you know, breaking a bone. He said the grief is not in the bone break, but in the way it sets afterwards. Yeah, And I think that's that's what the book really explores, is, is like, the the resetting of everything. As you've said in that, like, boring, quote-unquote, everyday, Mm. kind of non-sensational... You know, there's Mm. not fireworks every day but that doesn't mean that that is any less traumatic yeah and I think that's why I ended up putting fairly early in the novel um a family bereavement in the Ripon family and a sort of lots around kind of close death experiences and um I the reason for that was I wanted to look at the parallel between Max's grief and Kate's grief for what she's lost because yes. trauma is a kind of grief. It's kind mm. of a loss of a innocent self or a former self. And there's a way in which that parallel experience draws them together, but it also comes between them because 
sort of he feels like I'm going down this path with my grief and you're going down that path or at least she feels like that perhaps he doesn't notice it so so well but I do think that there is a parallel between grief and trauma what do you hope readers will learn or understand from reading Kate's story um I hope they'll find uh hope actually and uh joy in some of the moments in which kind of Kate is living continuing to live her life and that in itself is a is a triumph for her and the kind of moments of light and laughter that kind of actually when you're in that kind of pit do carry you through just knowing that everything isn't always going to be like this there are some things about this situation even though it's really shit that are kind of hilarious and there are moments where I'm just going to be myself again um so yeah I that's the thing that I would like to come across And finally, I'm so fascinated to know your first job was working in a literary agency. What was it like to be on the other side of that as an author? I always wonder when writers start in agenting or um, in publishing, when they start writing themselves, whether it's freeing or inhibiting to be so familiar with the kind of machinations of the industry. Um, I think it probably made me a lot calmer about everything because I knew the pace that things worked at and I knew that a lot of things weren't going to be personal. Mm. You know, say someone doesn't like what you've written. I know I've read a lot that I've had reactions to because I had the wrong thing for lunch or... so arbitrary so I think it that's a good attitude to have. I was literally yeah. just thinking Doing I could do with some of that if every time someone didn't like my book it's like well it's just obviously what they had for they lunch they had a ham sandwich for lunch and not macaroni cheese <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think you need to do yeah I mean yeah we'll see how that goes in the coming in the coming weeks but it has been kind of quite um, grounding in that way Rosie thank you so much for joining us on the high low I'm so so pleased that Pandora picked up your book in the autumn and that she was so blown away by it because I was totally blown away by it too it was a privilege to read and we are so sure it's going to be a very important book for so many people what red was is available to buy from Thursday thank you very much for listening to the high low you can rate review and subscribe on iTunes it helps other people find us and boosts us in the charts you can email us the high low show at gmail.com or tweet us at the high low show bye-bye bye For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.